Welcome to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. So before we dive in today, we have some fun news for our regular listeners. If you have tuned into the show in the past, you will know that in addition to the podcast, we've broadcast from KUCI for nearly 24 years. We recently decided to go to a podcast-only platform, and that means we're now able to offer our listeners some extra perks. To keep the show ad-free and now fund-drive-free, we've started a Patreon page that lets us keep in better touch with you. In addition to our usual programming, folks who support the show can get writing tips, writing prompts, book recommendations, and even free books delivered to your door. There are a few other goodies in there, too. Uh, Because we're just launching, we're offering a very special deal for the first 10 folks who sign up. For that first month, those 10 folks will get the tier above whatever tier they signed up for. There are four tiers to choose from. You can see all the benefits up there associated with each one. Visit www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing, all one word. Whatever level you choose, it helps. If the show has boosted your writing in some way, if you've gotten some useful advice or tips, consider this a way of saying thanks. We appreciate it all, and we just want to keep doing what we do. On with the show. Today, I'm joined by Annie Hartnett, author of Rabbit Cake and most recently, Unlikely Animals. This interview is filled with some never-before-heard advice about Annie's unique and super useful revision process. We also talk about structure, plot, keeping track of a big cast of characters, and the do's and don'ts of finding an agent. Enjoy the conversation. Annie Hartnett, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So you're like the animal whisperer of literary fiction. And (laughs) because this is such a recurring theme in your work, and as I think we might discover, it's also a recurring theme in some of your teaching. I would just love to chat a little bit about animals and the successful way you've made them work in your fiction and and kind of maybe some of the challenges that they have posed as well. But they, you know, they certainly pop up a lot. Talk about that. Yeah, that was something I was self-conscious about, you know, with the second novel is famously fraught because you're like, can I do it again? What did I even do the first time? (laughs) And one thing that I was worried about was I kept, whenever I would sit down to write and, you know, not think, animals always came up. And I did ask my, both my agent and then my Tin House editor, if they would think that that was a problem. And both of them were like, I would never expect to read an Annie Hartnett novel and have not have animals in it. So it makes sense to me as like no people who know me as a person, but I was, you know, it shouldn't be a stick either. But this in this novel, it got to be really fun using animals Uh, and I think I will only be able to do this in this one novel was being able to get into the dog's head, Mm. having his point of view just a little bit was maybe the most fun I've had writing. And I mean, I have a lot of fun writing, but this, that was like a particular pleasure writing into Moses's, the dog in this book's head. I, I don't know if it's a challenge to, to work animals into my writing or to figure out like where they fit. It's one of those things I, I kind of can't resist doing. So I do tell my students to like follow, and this is maybe the theme with this whole book is to follow your obsessions and, and they'll lead you interesting places. So 
So I guess I, I am obsessed with animals. And, and even though it's hard to follow your own advice sometimes, when I do follow my own advice about, about obsession, then that's where the animals show up everywhere. So my understanding is you were working on a different novel when this novel came about and you, you made a discovery about, you know, an animal park. We can talk about that. But, but the novel you were working on was specifically about fifth graders. And were there, were there as many animals in that book as well? So there were no animals in that book. And in, in that book was sort of absorbed into this book. Um, but that was, it was a different book. And I don't think there were any animals in it. It was something I started when I was in my last couple of weeks in my MFA program, because I had a professor at the program who told me, before you le- you leave the program, um, you should start writing a second book. Well, you're still like, I was pretty, you know, I was in the middle of like 40,000 words into rabbit cake. I was really in the middle of writing that first draft, um, even though it was my thesis project, which is supposed to be done, but most people don't have like a really finished, finished novel. So I I had more half of a novel and he said, put it aside for a couple of weeks. And while you're in this sort of comfortable space, start something new. And so that's when I started a book that then I put aside for years, which was set in a small town, which is, um, it turned out it would be a small town, um, set in a small town. And it was told from the perspective of the fifth graders in the town. Hmm. So once people read the book, you will see how that sort of like, it was a collective voice, but it was from the fifth graders. And so that kind of rattled around in my brain for a couple of years, but I didn't work on it again for that was 2015. I didn't really start working on it again until 2018. That's really interesting advice. And I think really good advice because, you know, you're often told to sort of end a writing day in the middle of a sentence so that, you know, you have some thread to pick up from when you start again. And so uh, starting a novel at the end of your MFA program so that, you know, when you're out there on your own and there is no cushion of the MFA program, you'd have something to come back to. I, I haven't heard that advice, but that's, that's a good I idea. I think it's good advice and bad advice. Ah, okay. <laughs> I think it's good advice. It worked out in some ways that I came back to it, but I also think, well, as long as you go back to the, the main project, you know, you take a couple of weeks off and work on something new, but having, I, I've taught the novel for many years now, and I've seen a lot of students who want to quit their book for a little while just because it's getting hard and work on the new like sexy idea. So some people are writers who get a lot of ideas and the beginning is like the fun part for some writers. So I just caution people not to be like, oh, this is a good thing for me because sometimes you have to sit with the book and like live in the hardness of it in order to make it work for however long it takes. So I now feel that I have to completely finish a project, take it all the way home before I think about the next thing. Good point. Well, let's introduce this one so people know a little bit more of what we're talking about because it's brand new out. So I know most people have not picked it up. Take us into Unlikely Animals and and then we can kind of talk about your inspiration for writing of it. Kind of set the stage for us. Yeah. So Unlikely Animals, it's a coming home story of a young woman named Emma Starling who has come home again to small town, New Hampshire to take care of her dying father who is suffering from a mysterious brain disease. And it's about her taking care of him or or learning how to take care of him. But she has also, there's a little bit of magic in the story. So she was born with a slight magic healing touch in her hands. 
just sort of slight when she was born, the nurse said, oh, she cured my sciatica. And so she's lived with this sort of myth of her healing potential her whole life. And she was going to use that to be headed to med school um, because her parents or her mom is pushing her towards med school. But she's come home and she's dropped out of med school and she's taking care of her father. And she's knowing that whatever magic touch she ever had, it's not going to be enough to heal her father. So she's feeling quite disappointed at the beginning of the novel. And it is about both her relationship with her family and then her relationship with this small town, which she like kind of left and never wanted to go back to. And that is based on a a real small town in New Hampshire, where I was kind of really inspired by, I was writing the, the book that was about fifth graders, and it, but it didn't have this sort of magic to me, the way a rabbit cake always felt so fun and easy to work on and so exciting to me. And, and this one didn't have that. And one day I was driving through New Hampshire and I came across this enormous yellow mansion, um, just driving down this forested street with the covered bridge and little ponds, visiting some friends up there. And I look up and there's this huge yellow mansion and I'm like, what is that place? This is not a town where there's any other mansions. So I Googled it and it's a like huge yellow mansion, Newport, New Hampshire. And that was the only search result. And so it was this, a robber baron, a Gilded Age robber baron had moved up there after he retired, after he made his millions, um, he moved up there to his hometown and he built the mansion. And then behind the mansion, he bought up 60 farms, um, forcing farmers out sometimes um, to build a 26,000 acre hunting park. And so I'm learning all this, obsessed with animals, obsessed with this like history and this magic mansion I just stumbled on. And then I learned that the park is still there today. And now I write dark comedies like set. I like, you know, to tell kind of, I like to tell a lot of dark jokes. I like, you know, I'm not really a a writer that would, would, I think, succeed or use most of my tools if I were to write historical fiction. So I didn't want to write historical fiction. I wanted to write something set now. And then I learned this park is still around, still 26,000 acres, all fenced in, belonging to like 25 anonymous millionaires who just have this private private property there. So my mind is totally blown and I keep researching, keep going to the historical societies in the area. And or there's, there's really two different towns it's based on, but, and then I find the last thing that was like, I really have to write about this is I found as I'm in the attic of the historical societies, this guy who is the naturalist for the park, Ernest Harold Baines, who was a real life Dr. Doolittle. And he had animals that lived in his house, a bear, foxes, deer, like tons of birds, birds were sort of his thing. He had two tame bison. And so then I'm just like, so in love with this person and this whole history I stumbled on, but I still wanted to write the book set in 2014. So the, he quickly became, he was the first ghost in the story. There are a bunch of ghosts in the story, but he is the first and most important ghost in the story. And the, the father who, who Emma Starling is going home to take care of Clive has the brain disease. And he sort of conjures up this Ernest Harold Baines character who is based on the real guy. And um, throughout there are, since everything is in public domain, I'm able to use his real photographs and his real writings as like sort of texture throughout the book. 
It's so crazy. I mean, I kept thinking if Annie ever has to do elevator pitches for this, I don't know how the hell she's going to do it because yeah, there's so many moving parts. I mean, we haven't. It is a crazy book to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's so many moving parts. We haven't even mentioned the opioid um, epidemic that sort of seized this town. And, you know, there's. Well, I wanted to write about I wanted to write. So after Rabbit Cake came out, I had a bunch of most mostly my father's friends who said, you write like John Irving. And and I always say to my students, um, if you haven't read somebody and everyone tells you you write like them, then you got to go read them. And so I had not sort of embarrassingly not read any John Irving. So but a bunch of people said that to me. And so I went to start reading some John Irving and then I couldn't stop because I was like, you know, I don't I I can see why someone might say that and how flattering it was. But I was like, I really want to write a novel like this that has all these different moving pieces that all come together in the end. So that was a real goal for me. And that's that I think is why it contains so much stuff because that was an, not, not afraid so much to have so much stuff in there. So you had this idea of based on this hunting park, which I'm kind of picturing like the most dangerous game with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And this naturalist. And then when you sat down to write it, because it's, it's driven really by this kind of core family, did it then feel like it was character driven or situation driven or place driven? Then what became kind of the anchoring thing that you could grip onto as a writer and say, this is, this is who's going to guide me through this novel. Well, I didn't have with rabbit cake. It was so character driven that I always say in rabbit cake, it doesn't matter what happens in that book. Yeah. Um, because all that matters is that you like the, the, the little girl who narrates it, Elvis. But with this book, I really wanted to try more with a plot. So for me, I think that I I was more driven by the plot in terms of writing. And then it was in later drafts where I had to add character depth. I mean, Clive, the father, always had his own, a very strong sense of character. But but I was really driven on on the plot and trying to make sure all the plot pieces fit together um, in, in a first draft. And that was before I originally told it as a straight sort of omniscient third person narrator was how the first couple drafts went. And then the narration, once the narration changed and so it is narrated, I said it was, there's a bunch of ghosts in the book. Um, So it is narrated. So it's set in the small town called Everton and in the center of the town is a cemetery. And so it's narrated by the residents of that cemetery who, you know, range in recently dead to long dead and they i realized when i was at mcdowell i had a month at mcdowell which was just amazing and i was five months pregnant and it was like the last best time of my life (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like the most creative time i could have been i like felt great i so i was up there and you know the first when you get to mcdowell they kind of hammer home all the history of the place so they're like don't waste your time here so i'm there for a month and i realized as i'm sitting there writing a book set in new hampshire writing in another part of new hampshire trying to figure out my friend had said who is telling this story you have this omniscient narrator but whoever he or she is is like tells a lot of jokes and like I need to know who they are. And so I realized that it needed to be somebody telling the story. And so I thought, well, maybe I could try telling it from the, the cemetery doing that. Thornton Wilder wrote Our Town at 
um, McDowell. So that's where that idea oh, came from. Great. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll try that. But I was very scared too, because um, George Saunders had written Lincoln and the Bardo like the year before. So mm. I thought, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not George Saunders and I'm not trying to be George Saunders. But I'll try it. And then I showed it to some friends there and they said, like, it's all you. And it's a long tradition. You know, there's like Spoon River. There's a long, there's our town. There's um, Lovely Bones, sort of not exactly that cemetery. But so, and once I had that, that kind of having the narrator helped me gel all my different ideas together. And so one question I kind of have for myself that I don't have the answer to is can I ever write a straight third person narrator and do the same sort of humor I want to do? And I'm not sure I can, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not, yeah. but, um, but having, so having those narrators really freed me up to both explore a lot of different things, connect the Gilded Age stuff with the 2014 opioid crisis stuff. And also just everything that has ever happened in the town is interesting to those people because they are either saw it themselves or they just love everyone who's in the town and they have a special insight into what happens after death. So it being a book about death, that's actually supposed to be, hopefully not everyone gets my sense of humor, but it's supposed <laughs> to be very funny. Yes. Um, and, and that is like, but through the narrators that allow me to do. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. I mean, I really, yeah, I'd have read Lincoln and the Bardo and I didn't even make that connection until you just said that. I'm like, yes, of course that's true. But they felt so very different that I wouldn't even have drawn that connection, but it gave you the latitude to do so many different things, which is swoop down into different people's points of view, tell the story from the dog's point of view, as you said, mm -hmm. you know, move, move around between characters and then get the history of the town you know, a lot of the people in the cemetery, I don't think it gives too much away to say have succumbed to the opioid epidemic. So we get kind of that backstory through them. And you had a very clever way of doing it so that when the dead people were speaking, you'd have their um, birth and death dates. So we knew we were hearing now from the ghosts. So it was never, you know, it could be confusing and it never was. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about setting the rules for yourself because there are a cluster of rules of what the dead can do what they can't do how much they can you know they can't predict the future but they can kind of see into people's psyches mm -hmm. and you had to weave those rules not didactically into the text you know so that we understood how the ghosts function and i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about managing all of that because it feels yeah hard. i mean we haven't even come up with I hope people are able to read the book and also listen to this podcast. I know, I know. Because yeah, it's just gonna well, I'm at the beginning of my book tour and I'm I I know there's just so many that I'm like, and we haven't even talked about this. So we have right. not even talked about that there's a mystery that goes on in the book. So one thing, the hardest thing with having these ghosts and figuring out that 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 it was a I wanted the ghost to narrate and I wanted them to be omniscient and I wanted to be able to like head hop around, mostly focused on the main character, Emma, and then her secondary, her father, Clive, but also go into anybody's head who just appears. But they also know everything that goes on in the town and there's a missing person. And so I had to figure out how to balance that they are telling you the story and that they probably know the answer to what happened to this person, but they're not going to tell you. And some of that was just figuring out who they are as characters and what they care about. 
and they care most about the living people in the town, which helps me so much because they just love everyone, no matter what has happened, what they've done, even the sort of probably the worst character who I will give something away, but they see the good in all people and they really, really want everyone to have second chances. And that's they, cause they all just want one more day alive. And like some of them just want to eat a chocolate cake they want just like a little bit more time and so they want and they but they have also accepted that they don't get any more time so they everyone who's living whether they're struggling with addiction or they're dying of a brain disease they just want everyone to get a little more time and a second chance so the loving the people of the town was like one rule that really helped me just sort of guide the tone, I think, but also figuring out that what they also love the most because they're stuck in the cemetery and they can't go anywhere is they just love a good story. Mm-hmm. So they are kind of clear with you that they know what happened, but they're not going to let their knowledge get in the way of the good story. And so they like to just sit around. And even though they know everything about Nancy Brown's life in the next grave, they let Nancy sit there and tell her stories. And that is, and that, in that way, they're kind of a family of themselves that they just like, in, in my family, at least we just tell the same stories over and over and we let each other do it as a show of love, I think. <laughs> and so that helped me too, that they're like, we know, but you know, we're telling you the story, so we're not going to ruin it now because then the story would be over. Then there are some other rules of how they can't get involved in, in the events. And then really my favorite rule, I think, is that there's the the ghost of Ernest Harold Baines, who he really was cremated and spread in the park. And so he's a cremated ghost in the in the book. He's not buried in the cemetery. And once I read he was cremated, I think that that's how I started writing that. And then the ghosts, they are stuck in the cemetery. They have to sit on their gravestones and kind of chat the differences between them and that they kind of see each other as uh, they look down on each other for being a, a cremated ghost has to like is sort of doomed to walk around the town for the rest of their life and can go can go other places so he can be in the house with clive but the the ghosts are are bound the other ghosts are bound within the stone wall so i had a lot of fun with that stuff even though it's kind of I had to make sure I didn't make any sort of mistakes. So there's a lot of details and making sure that I didn't screw up any of the, the rules of the ghosts. It did make me want to be cremated, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't even remember how many ghosts there are. I mean, I didn't count it up, but I'm going to, I don't know, I'd guess like 10 or so ghosts that were kind of actively talking all the time. Oh, that's a good um, question. I had a list and now I, I, I have a list somewhere on my computer. I think there's probably more like... 15 to 20. Okay. Well, Um, that was going to be my question is if you had a list going kind of on your wall of all the names and dates and little personality quirks of each one and because keeping all of these straight because the cast of, I mean, we should also say the cast of minor characters who are living is also not small. And so keeping this whole cast of people going, I was wondering if that was a matter of like post-it notes, or you had a little page on each one in your computer where you were keeping biographical information on everybody or how you kept people and their backstory and their arc, you know, straight in your own mind. So I have a sketchbook. And I write everything in that and I draw out the plot a lot. One thing that helps me keep everything together in my mind is just 
and this is pretty simple, but is to name the chapters something that is like a Friends episode, the one where Ross kisses Rachel. Ah, yeah. Or like Mm -hmm. Joey kills Chandler or something. Um, (laughs) And so that calling them that, even if it if it's like more artsy than the one where, but I, I something about the title of the chapter has to tell me what happened. And then I just put that on a page over and over and I write it just so I can see kind of how the events are happening. And then I have character lists of both the kids in the grade. I have a very, they, I did make the class, fifth grade class, so that from the original idea did carry over to Emma Starling does return home and she does uh, substitute teach for a class. And she, so there's only nine children in the class. So I had to make that small because I wanted most of them, at least some of them have less of a personality, but I wanted, you know, a couple of them, like the majority of them to have real personalities. And then the ghosts, I had a running list of who they are. I actually just pulled up the list and it is more like 20 people, but some of them only appear once. Like you just hear that Keegan Murphy has joined after something that happens to him. But the ones that are real, real characters, I think there's probably five or six that have like full personalities. Chatty. Chatty. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I really marveled at, and you know, you've mentioned your sense of humor and I to appreciate and love a dark sense of humor, but to be able to navigate, you know, the opioid epidemic and a missing person and a brain disease, it did not feel heavy. I mean, it, in parts it did, but it really felt very, you know, there were many laugh out loud parts, funny. And, you know, even the ways some of the characters would die were really, very, really <laughs> very funny. That sounds just very natural to your voice and who you are and your sense of humor. But I don't know if you had to tiptoe around any issue of, you know, this is scary territory in the opioid epidemic and a lot of people have died of it, or can I make fun of this? Or how do I keep this light while still making, you know, kind of a pretty poignant point about it? Did, was that difficult or was that really pretty natural to your voice? I think it, it to be honest, it is pretty natural, but I, I doesn't mean I haven't like thought about it or second guessed myself. I, I did have my editor said that what she loves most about my humor is that never, ever mean. And mm. I think that that doesn't seem like a maybe super deep comment, but for me, it really made me think to just be sure that those that, that's the guardrails for me is just to be sure that I'm never, ever writing anything mean. And some, there are some times in, in early drafts that I will, I, I could get mean and say things that are not nice about somebody or, or even something like, you know, use the name of somebody I don't particularly like. I always edit that out anything, anytime that I'm writing for like a place of spite or, you know, put my ex-boyfriend's name (laughs) in a book, (laughs) I always take it out. So that is helpful. And then having the opioid crisis in there, it was definitely not, you know, I'm going to write about this, but uh, we're doing the research in the real place. Originally, I just had the brother character having struggled with it and it was part of his character only. And then it sort of seeped into the rest of the book and became so much more important to the plot. That was like sort of the the last probably thing I, I really felt I had to do was make sure that I was, and as I was writing, I also did a lot of research, reading um, some books and watching a bunch of documentaries, just to be sure that I was understanding it as much as I, I possibly could. And I do have 
friends who have had their own personal experiences who who did read it and my friend said you know if we can't laugh about it how are we ever going to get through it so that's some someone who had you know the real personal experience with it so that having have friends read the the excerpt i was i had to make sure i were was always being sensitive made me feel like okay well if these people my friends feel feel like i did a good job then my friend said it didn't make me throw the book across the room once so <laughs> the highest praise ever yeah no i feel i do feel like you know there's there's a gallows sense of humor about these things that if you don't have it i mean anybody who's lost somebody it's there are funny moments and if you don't have that i mean that's such a texture of grief i think is yeah. humor i mean they they're so closely bound up to each other and if you don't have one i don't know how you survive the other so i i think it really felt very authentic to me. Yeah, for a lot of people, I think it's humor is sort of how we carry on. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. The other thing I marveled at, and I'm hardly the first to observe that middles of books are really hard for writers. And that's where you really, as you said at the beginning of the interview, that's where people bolt for the door and they're like, how about a new novel? And here, I mean, I would almost argue that the middle was my favorite part of this book. I just thought it sailed along and I couldn't stop reading. And there was never a point where I was like, you know, Ugh, let's just get to get to some more action. The middle really had a hmm. lot of suspense and movement for me. And so I was wondering if if we could talk about that, because as you've mentioned, you know, plot was really on your mind on this novel and the structure I thought worked so very well. And I don't know how you accomplished that, but it had to have been intentional because I mean, it's, it's hard for everyone. So can you talk a little bit about maintaining suspense, maintaining momentum in, in the, the center section of the book and maybe how you approached structure? Yeah. So I was definitely, I've definitely been obsessed with structure. I think that learning how to, I feel like thinking about structure as a bit with the beginning, middle and end can make any piece of writing better. And I, and I didn't really learn that until I was writing rabbit cake. And so writing this book is extremely structured, but I think for the middle specifically, one of the last scenes I wrote was one of my favorite scenes in the middle, which I won't but what happens at the banquet scene mm -hmm. that was one of the last scenes that i put into the book and that oh, was because wow. the brother character had become a more important character and i kind of realized he needed his own sort of chapter but that was that was a really late ad that was even after we sold the book as my agent said you know there she could be something in the middle <laughs> wow. Wow. um so i i probably maybe had a little bit of a lag that she was noticing and and once and really i mean that scene turned out to be one of my favorites and it's a nice nice conversation with the end of the book sort yeah of. i mean they're, yeah. yeah nice yeah i realized i think through talking to both my editor and agent that what i am best at is writing set pieces where everything kind of is set up and then everything goes crazy and so they always talked about like, right, it's another set piece, right, another set piece. And I had never thought about writing that way as, as that something that had, I hadn't heard the term set piece before, but I liked it. And, and this book was so visual to me that it made sense. But I did really pay attention in writing this book to, you know, when things are supposed to happen in like a three act structure. And I spent a lot of time teaching Swamplandia as a as a book that really follows the hero hero's journey, mm. and that book is super structured as well. 
this book it does because there are so many pieces to it i think the beginning you kind of have to be into the by sentence by sentence you have to like the voice because there is so much that needs to be set up in order for the bit it start to pay off so I think that it, it, it doesn't necessarily follow the, follow the advice that's like, start as late as you possibly can. Cause I'm like, no, you need to know all this stuff first. But I wanted that to to go into some sort of big finish. And and so writing the middle, I think is the hardest part because you can, I, I, I find that people often know what's gonna happen at the end before they get there, but then what happens in the middle and the middle is what changes any character, whatever yeah. happens to them in the middle. And there has to be, I think, there's a great essay by George Saunders, who's now I'm just, I guess, a fangirl for, but about, and I think he write, he's written several versions of this, but he writes this essay that's in his book, um, The Brain Dead Megaphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think he has a sort of different metaphor in the, his new Russian book, but he says that you want little gas stations along the way. Yes. So you kind of a scene that is maybe like the banquet scene in my book that's like a lot of crazy fun stuff happens that's a gas station for us to like stop and you know get some momentum and then and that'll should zip right along and then afterwards you can kind of go for a while and maybe do a little bit of you know some some characters have deep conversations and stuff that's necessarily for the emotional growth of the characters but isn't like that sexy and then you need another gas station so that between the set pieces and reading about the gas stations as i was writing the book that helped me to make sure that there was always something especially with this book that relies on a lot of pieces that they they need to keep intersecting as you go i wanted it to all add up in the end but you kind of have to see how it is adding up as you go my guest this morning is annie hartnett the book we're talking about is unlikely animals you're listening to Writers on Writing. Well, you are the queen, or this book is the prime example of surprising inevitability, which is every writer's goal and every writer's difficulty to achieve. And this just had it one after the other. So as you're talking, I'm understanding how you were laying down these little clues very early on, letting us, you know, kind of forget about those clues. And then spark you know we get the we get the payoff and those happened a lot and so you know I'm sure that was all very intentionally plotted out but I heard you had some sort of advice I can't remember who gave it to you about introduce a naked mole rat let the reader forget about it and then you know surprise us with it later on and if there are other tricks you know about how you created this pleasurable surprising inevitability that I lost count of how many times it happened but but it was masterful. Yeah. So that was my professor, Kelly Wells, who had told me, so rabbit cake has a lot of animal facts, including a lot, including a ton about the naked mole rat, mole rat, which are like the coolest animal ever. And so I could just like spit out all the facts, including, I guess, most usefully in that, in that book, which was about grief was naked mole rats cannot feel pain. Mm. Um, so that's a delicious metaphor. And so this, the little girl's obsessed with animals. So I had it all in, but I kind of had it in like a clump of, you know, here's all the cool stuff about naked mole rats. And so, uh, my professor Kelly Wells said, you know, you want to chop that up or you want to like, give us a little, and then remind us later is that, oh, I'm just like a naked mole rat. Cause I don't feel pain, you know? And, and then it has a big punch cause it's been 50 pages and 
that is a lot of pleasure for a reader just to reuse things you've already the, for the reader and the writer to see something that they they've seen before but in a new way because it makes us feel like we're paying attention right um, and so that gives us like this great satisfaction because it's, i feel like it, more and more we're like oh I, you know i'm i'm not I'm so smart yeah. but i'm really paying attention and i get that was a reference to something that happened 75 pages ago so yeah, that I realized writing Rabbit Cake and through that help from my professor that that's the fun thing about writing a novel is that people can, that your reader both remembers and forgets. And so I saw that sort of web that you can weave and like it's a magic trick. And so I, ha I had that magic trick nature in, in Rabbit Cake some, but I really did it here because I really had that pleasure or figured out that that was the most pleasurable thing about writing a novel was weaving a web and letting readers forget. And then I could do it here over and over and over. And so that was my favorite thing is just to, just to keep doing that almost to an excessive amount. And then it, it just became such a tangled web. But even though this is kind of corny, I wanted every, I wanted everything to be resolved as much as possible. So every little tiny plot line like has a resolution. That was a marvel too. There were little times I was like, well, wait, what happened to, and then I was like, oh, I got my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, and I, I, I would say it's corny, but I think it, I get away with it because the ghost narrators care about everyone in the town. So that they're trying to give you the full picture of what happens to everybody. So th those narrators let me get away with a lot. And th they also made me do this where I'm paying attention to every detail because they know everything that's happening in the town at all times. They have everyone's head, like voices in their heads. So I don't know if I would ever write a no another novel. I mean, I will take things forward from this novel, but but the ghosts really kind of demand an extra level of we got to have so many balls in the air because they can hear everything. And yet you kept your arms around it because I thought, oh, the ghosts could have followed the mother, you know, I mean, there were characters they didn't really follow. And if they mm -hmm. had, you just would have, you know, spun out. I mean, you also had to keep your eye on what the story is, how to move the action forward without getting too diverted into, let's go over here and see what's happening in this house, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's, and that's some of that was natural that I, you know, wasn't, didn't want to know what Ingrid was up to necessarily, or didn't think it needed a lot of explanation. But some of that was, was definitely a credit to my editor because I really wanted a lot more Mavis Spooner in there, but mm -hmm. she, she was like, that's, I think that's only the parts that I had were in were like, okay, you just need a little bit of this woman. You don't need as much as, as much because I was, she was definitely an obsession of mine. Sure. Um, yeah. She's based on a real news story, um, which I won't, I can't talk about because it will give away that part of the plot. But the old woman is based on a real woman in somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk offline about that. I know you did a class on structure and it was so helpful to hear just like little snippets and notes from it. I think yet again, animals were involved. I think there was a snake and a chicken or something. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could just give us a little, you know, five minute mini class, because I think that would be so useful for people to hear how to approach structure. It's so elusive and hard. Yeah. So I teach this thing, which I will tell you about. And I, I don't know, you have show notes. Can you put something in the show notes? Yeah. And I usually teach this about if it's a 10 week class, I usually teach this at like class seven when we're all friends 
and they know me, and they know my weirdness. So it is a super sort of weird thing, but it was, or it's just kind of funny, but I loved both when I, so the story about structure for me was I, I wrote rabbit cake in my MFA program or half of it, finished it and then sent it to agents. And I was lucky to get an agent. Um, I think that I would caution anyone to like, make sure your book has a structure before you get an agent, because you may not get an agent, but I was lucky <laughs> I got an agent. And then she said, what's the climax and of the book? And I, I, that was not at all how we talked about like art in my MFA program. And so, which I think is not uncommon in MFA programs, but so we hadn't, I said, no one talks about books like that. <laughs> and she was like, oh yes, they do. And we really need to. <laughs> so I had to figure out, you know, what that book was really about. And then I was like, oh, that's just what the climax is. It's what the book is really about oh, structure unlocks everything for me. And so I became obsessed with the three-act structure at that point. And that's how I sort of like worked on Rabbit Cake. But as I kept teaching the novel and kept sort of working on a new novel, I was like, well, it, the three-act structure is super useful as you're building the book, but it doesn't really help you as you're editing your structure to figure out what belongs and what doesn't. And I think every every writer, and maybe especially myself, struggles with this, like people who, who are a lot, what what to take out. And so this is really a second draft or third or fourth or fifth draft structure thing, but it's how to think about your book and the structure of it in order to help you edit. And so for me, I used a snake and I really like snakes or I like all animals, so, <laughs> but I like snakes. And the snake, I think is like a novel that it's this like moving thing and it's got a head like, you, so the head of the snake is, this is what the book is about. It tells me what kind of snake it is. We need to know right in the beginning, like what sort of book are, are is this gonna be? Is it romance? Is it, where is it set? All, all the basics like sort of need to happen in the head, like as soon as possible. So I can kind of be like, this is this kind of animal. And then you go from there and this the rest of the snake is not really any more complicated than it's just that it goes because that is really what you would learn from the sort of like little triangle of here's the midpoint and here's the inciting incident and all that and so i use that part with my students to first we use this and then we go on to the snake and so and then the tail is so it is a um and i always get the name of this wrong the snake eating its tail starts oh the it. orboros yeah 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 so it's a snake eating its tail so think about it like that that the, the it's got to always come back to itself somehow which the triangle does not do but it needs the beginning and the end really need to talk to each other in order for it to feel like a fully like you really went on a journey mm -hmm. and that's the hero's journey goes in a circle so there are other structures that that do that then there are a couple pieces so every scene in a book or set piece, maybe you would say, is a rat. And some of them are, some of them are rats. So you look at each one, you consider it, and some of them are frozen rats, and some of them are, are digested rats. So this is not exactly how snake digestion works, I don't think, but I don't know that one. <laughs> but some of them are, they're in this, inside the snake, and it, the whole you figure out what what kind of book is this what are like so i make my students make sort of a list of the themes like what are you trying to write about what's like the main theme what's like the main elevator pitch what are the other themes that you're exploring like maybe th make a bulleted list of like three and then you find a rat 
the scene and ask yourself, like, can this by, be digested into the main plot? Mm. Like, does it belong there? Is it adding, so is it nourishing the main snake? And if it is, then great. And maybe it needs to be digested more. And so it needs to be like sort of like the naked mole rat chopped up and then moved like little bits and little bits. So you chop up your, your rat. Yep. But, but in the first draft, it might appear like this fully whole thing that's in the snake and it definitely belongs there. And maybe you just need to like rearrange it and chop it up. And then there are frozen rats that are in there and may and, and sort of like want to belong to the book, but don't quite yet. So you need to figure out, can I work something into the brother's character that makes him more part of the rest of this book? Can I make him struggle with something? Can I give him his own scene so that he's not just this like character who's standing by, but is, an, is another person who really goes on his own journey in this book. So those are the undigested, frozen rats that are off to the side well that they're in the book but they're not like interacting with the the main plot yet yes um, okay and then there are chickens and that's the last piece of this and then <laughs> you come across something that you think it's a rat because it's a scene and you and you often this is like and you love it and one of my students said to me well it like chickens are not very distracting Annie like you need to make if I'm looking at <laughs> if there's a chicken and a giant snake in the room I'm going to be looking at the snake so I have it's a it's a chicken in a purple sequin suit so it's a scene that you really love but it's so distracting that it's and it's not adding anything to the plot and it's a, it's kind of a, often a kill your darling situation that it is maybe one of the favorite scenes that you've written but it's not it's not nourishing the snake anyway in any way and that it can't even be it'll never be it's just too big big to be digested by the snake ever so mm -hmm. it has to and everybody has one or everyone people have a couple <laughs> or many yeah a whole flock yeah, yeah. yeah. but I, I always give this speech and then someone's like oh my god i have a chicken and it's something that is just like that you have like really like took the watering can out and like given love to every day and it just is like keeping you from finishing the book because it has nothing to do it's a whole nother idea so you take the chickens out and you put them in another draft and you either like save it on your computer forever and never look at it again, or you turn <laughs> it into its own thing. And so in Rabbit Cake, there was my big chicken Rabbit Cake was that it's a story about two sisters and they are both reeling after the death of, of their mother and, and, and they're dealing with their dad. And it's like this, they're in the house trying to deal with both of their problems that like the older sister's a sleepwalker and the mother died while she was out sleepwalking she drowned in a river so they're dealing with these immediate problems and the book spans 18 months it spans a year and a half and then in the middle of the book as they're struggling through school and home stuff it was summer so i sent them to sleepaway camp and that was the most fun scenes to write because they were at sleepaway camp i had some like crazy stuff that was based on my real sleepaway camp but like a lot crazier hmm. like everything i write about a little bit of real stuff it's a lot crazier <laughs> and then i realized oh my gosh but i took them out of like the the healing or the grieving or the they like what do you sleepaway camp is a vacation what do you do on vacation you forget about everything so there's no growing that happens mm. there's no like make your characters stick in the mud and work through their stuff so the sleepaway camp was just like a short story that was stuck in the middle of the book 
and was really messing with my momentum. So I guess that that's like going back to like, how do you make sure the middle moves is to make sure that what you have in the middle is not only like exciting, it should be like a really good rat. Like I think having a mid, like a really strong midpoint and a strong mid scene really helps, but you want to make sure that it is nourishing the snake. Otherwise it just makes you feel like, so either it's you run out of energy in the middle or you feel like, oh, we are entering a different book now, which is also a bad feeling. Right. As you're talking, I can see so many of these principles at play. I mean, about the Ouroboros of starting where you end. I mean, in this book, we start with Clive and I wouldn't, I mean, he is a main character, but I wouldn't say he was like screaming out the very primary main character, but we start with him and we end with him. And so there's a pleasure in that circular motion of the book. And then as you're talking about taking out the chickens and, you know, your temptation to write about this woman in her real life story. Well, right. yeah, that would not yeah. serve. Yeah. That would not serve the snake. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't serve the snake. Yes. She is very much a side character. And I think you can indulge yourself a little bit with side characters and I certainly do, but yeah, you have to make sure that they don't take over and become chickens. Which is what would have happened if we would have followed Ingrid. That wouldn't have served the story. I mean, that's not what the story was about. So yeah, yeah. I can, I can see all of this completely at play. And I can see how you wouldn't be able to do this until a pretty later draft. So you do kind of follow the wisdom of Save the Cat or some of these other classic three arc structure narrative. Yeah, um, I've never read Save the Cat, but I should because I know it's but yeah, I just basically all I do is I mean, I must have read some book. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of iconic. It's out there, you know. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I was gonna say all I do is like look at that diagram, but I must. How would I understand each piece of it? It may just even be reading like blog articles about it because I don't know if I've read. I've read craft books, but they're usually like much less. I did read actually when I was a bookseller. I read Blueprint Your Bestseller while I was working one night and nobody was in the store. Uh, so maybe that's where I got all it because that 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 is pretty much as far as I know the same as as save save the cat uh, which I like I haven't read but I know that it really tells you like what to do on each page Um, well and I think the George Saunders essays too and that mastercraft on you know swimming in the pond you do just digest a lot of writerly advice through all of those craft essays (laughs) I'm sure it was in there somewhere I can't remember but I'm sure it was I do love his little gas stations. He must be an amazing teacher, but he is. So in terms of, I guess we're drawing down on our time, but in terms of, you mentioned the big A word agent and finding one. And I know A Rabbit Cake was published by Tin House and this book came through Valentine, which is an imprint of Random House. And I don't know, you know, in your course of working, if you had the same agent for both Rabbit Cake and and this book or, you know, what it was yeah, like I going with different agent. Okay. I don't know if you have any advice on that whole process, publishing process, when it's time to look for an agent and, you know, any, any, any insights about that publishing process that, that you care to share? Yeah. So I made some mistakes. I left my MFA program and I realized that I was the only one who cared if I ever finished my book. So I think that was kind of what the professor was telling me about, you know, start another book because the outside world is scary and you have to just keep finding ways to write no matter what, if you're working other 
like regular jobs. So I, I realized, okay, I do have to finish this book without, if I have no deadlines. So I spent that summer, I spent a summer without a job and I just wrote a thousand words a day at my parents' house. I lived with my parents. So it was my husband that lived with, well, he was my boyfriend back then, but finished the book that way. And then I immediately went out to look for an agent, didn't show it to anybody, huge mistake. But luckily I was lucky the first time that I went out, not that I got an agent right away, but that people told me what they thought about it. So I had some nice responses that were like, the voice is great. And then what happens on page 60 is crazy. And <laughs> I stopped reading around, you know, a hundred. So there were sort of like revise and resubmit. So I took it back and I worked on it for, then I had a fellowship at the Boston Public Library. And that was like so helpful because I kind of got a bonus year of MFA where I was funded and I worked at the bookstore. And so I had this sort of, nice experience there finishing it and then and then i went back out to an agent and i had you know worked and i thought i'd been working for so long and i was ready to go again and it was december and so i sent queries december oh. 9th which is like so you know people say don't do all of december and december 19th just seems like it's like Christmas Eve, basically. <laughs> and I think I didn't know, and people people don't know that publishing, the, it's such an old fashioned industry that December, like in general, people just wanna get things off their desk. And then the two, those two weeks of Christmas, New Year's are really, the offices are not open. Nobody does any work. Right. It's like one of the only times that people really hold sacred. And I sent queries December 19th and, or, or that week. I know to, to the woman I ended up going, it was, it was December 19th. And so a bunch of people did respond to me and ask me for, I think because I had, I had the fellowship, then I had some sort of people thought that maybe this was a good book. So pe people did request it that week. And then my agent, the one that I would go with, did get back to me in, within like 24 or 48 hours. So I was at, you know, doing Christmas stuff with my family and I talked to her, but then I had to go. So this was like the really big mistake because that was all exciting. But then there were other agents that I wanted to talk to. And even if you're the first agent who responds, it's like the love of your life. It's really valuable to hear from the other people because they might have good ideas about how to edit and you get sort of that free advice at that point. So I had to go back to the other people that were interested, including the people who had seen it the first round mm -hmm. um, and say, hope you're having a nice vacation, um, but I have an offer. And so if you could read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did ask for like three weeks and it really worked out that, you know, she was, she, I mean, it has extremely worked out. My agent is like one of the, the people I trust like most in the world, like as a friend and, and as an agent, but she was younger at the time. This was a while ago. <laughs> this right, was like 10 right. years ago. So, you know, she's, she and I are both no longer, not as young as we once were, but that I thought was an asset. I did talk to some other people who didn't feel as hungry for it or were like, but, but I probably took some things the wrong way too. I remember someone told me that I was really going to have to work his, like push up his sleeves and work on it. And I was like, well, that's insulting. And that's, that shouldn't be a bad thing either, but it really did work out for me because my agent is like sort of my angel from heaven. And she's the person I trust most about edits and she'll still always be the, probably the first person I show anything to. And we're just, we're a really good partner team. And then, and then I've loved both my editors, but 
you know, that was just, I needed random house has a lot more money. So I was both sad to leave and, and felt I, I had to, because, you know, I don't have a regular teaching job. I, I teach different like patchwork teaching here and there. So it's, um, so having a advance that's a little more livable is, um, was, was important to me at this moment in my life. So. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for that. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, we're drawing down on our time. Did we, is there other advice that you give out to your students routinely or advice that you got in your MFA that have sustained you? You just said my word, which is routine. (laughs) (laughs) Then give it routinely. Um, That's my big thing is routine and finding ways to be accountable. My friend and I are starting something that is not, I don't have like a website for it yet, but I will soon. It's, it's called accountability partners. And we're going to have like sort of work, monthly workshops where we're, we're keeping like a group. It, it's not a workshop in a, the traditional sense. It's like just having meeting and, and keeping everyone accountable for what they said they would do. Love it. Because that's what we did for each other because she, so she, Tessa Fontaine is her name. And she wrote this amazing memoir, the electric woman. And she wrote, said to me, you know, how do you write a second book? And I was like, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I, and I had been, you know, rabbit cake had been out for about a year and I just was so, so in the bad place. And so we decided that there's this essay from it's Amy Bender and it's on Google, Amy Bender, Oprah. And it's this essay about having someone to write to every day and just say, I did two hours. I said I'd do two hours, I did two hours, done. And then they, she writes back, check. And that's like all their interaction for the day. So that's what oh, I made yeah. all my students do is sign a contract, decide like what, and every, everyone's different. I think this is where people get into a lot of trouble thinking like I'm not a real writer if I don't write every day or I'm failing if I'm not writing every day. But like if you make some sort of contract with yourself, I had a student who was one of my most like she always turned in her pages on time, always gave me her 10 pages, which is what they owe me in this class. And she was a med school student, but she had Wednesday nights free from class and all her other stuff. And she just wouldn't let anybody, wouldn't let her boyfriend, wouldn't let anybody touch those Wednesday writing nights. And that's when she wrote and she always finished the 10 pages. So some, for some people, it's like just having a routine that is a block of, I don't know how many hours she did, like whether it's three hours or six hours, but like making sure that it happens routinely and consistently. And then that somebody cares who is not you. So either you have, and it doesn't even need to be a writer. It can be, you know, it could be a partner or it can be a friend who just has an interest in your writing, but doesn't even need to read it. That's the beauty of it. So um, Tessa and I are now working on making that like a more of a um, something that we will coach people with, but also you can do it for free by yourself. (laughs) It's brilliant. There is no substitute for butt in chair every day. And Yeah. yeah, whether it's word count or amount of hours or yeah, pages. I love that accountability. That's great. Well, Annie Hartnett, congratulations. This was so great. And I can't wait to press it into everybody's hand that I meet. And um, tell us how we can how we can follow you. And I know you've got a ton of events coming up. So I'm and I'm sure people will be interested. I don't know if any of them are online where people can watch you from the comfort of their own home. But tell us how we find you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's so you can find me. It's Annie underscore Hartnett and Instagram and on Twitter. And I have a lot of toddler pictures and dog pictures, as well as drawings um, on Twitter and Instagram. So there's other fun stuff there beyond writing. And then I'll be adding virtual events, I'm sure. So I'll put them on my website. It's Annie Hartnett. 
gmail.com. Perfect. Annie Hartnett, congratulations. This was great. Thank you so much. That was Annie Hartnett. The book is Unlikely Animals. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're inviting you to visit our Patreon page. There you can find some little perks we're offering to listeners like you. If you've tuned into our show and liked what you heard, consider supporting us. You can even offer up guest suggestions to hear more of what you want. Uh, that is patreon.com backslash writers on writing. You can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com minus marystone.com. And you can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. It's M-Y-K-A-J-A-B-I.com. That's all the time we've got for today. Tune in next week, and thanks for joining me. Have a great day.